I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33, as we make our way, getting back, uh, getting back into the book of Genesis, making our way uh, through uh, this book, we come to the life of Jacob and come at last to the, to the meeting of the estranged brothers Jacob and Esau. And so I'd like to read to us the whole chapter today, uh, chapter 33, beginning in verse 1. Let us give ear to the reading of God's word. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he had come near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way. I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloe Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys, for indeed it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would pierce our hearts, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. 
Well, it's been 20 years since Jacob had fled to Padam Aram, fleeing the wrath of his brother Esau, whom he, has to, whom he had cheated out of his blessing. And after 20 years, the Lord told him that it was time to return, to go to the land of promise, the land that he had sworn to give to his, uh, to his grandfather as well as his father, and is reiterating the promise to Jacob. And so Jacob had to escape from the clutches of his uncle Laban, and after successfully doing that because of the Lord, Jacob was, uh, now had to face the burden uh, of facing his brother Esau, whom 20 years before had comforted himself by planning his death. And so he sent messengers to greet his brother Esau, whom he had learned at this point was living down in the land of Seir, the uh, place southeast of the Dead Sea. And the messengers came back saying that Esau was coming to meet him and that 400 men were with him. Well, Jacob hears that news and assumes the worst. He assumes that Esau has summoned a mighty force and that he's going to go and mow down Jacob and his family, killing them all. And so Jacob totally panics. But after, uh, after the initial panic set in, Jacob, as we saw last time in chapter 32, Jacob uh, uh, prayed to the Lord for deliverance from his brother's wrath. But as we noticed a couple of weeks ago, instead of receiving a deliverer, Jacob received an opponent, the angel of the Lord coming to him at night while he was alone on the river Jabbok and wrestling with him, engaging him in a combat that lasted until daybreak. And although Jacob seemed to gain the upper hand in that conflict, the angel of the Lord simply reached out and with a simple touch on his hip, he threw his hip out of socket, socket hobbling Jacob and rendering him useless in the fight. And yet with tenacity, Jacob clutched, clung to, uh, to his superior opponent, and he begged him for a blessing. And yet instead of a, a, a typical blessing, the, the blessing came in the form of a name change. The angel of the Lord asked him, what is your name? And he says, my name is Jacob, which means deceiver or cheater. And yet God sovereignly renames Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob. No longer shall you be the one uh, uh, who shall be the one called the deceiver who uses your cunning and lies to gain an advantage. But now you shall be called Israel, which is probably best translated God fights. You see, this new identity that Jacob received in the form of a blessing means that he is now the one who will trust in the Lord to fight for him and to sovereignly accomplish all of his promises by grace alone. This is the crucial lesson that Jacob was to learn as he was now going to limp his way back into the land of Canaan. The one who wouldn't rely upon his own strength, his own devices and desires, but upon the Lord who would fight his battles for him. That's the important lesson that Jacob will now learn. But now he has to face his brother Esau. He's gone out of the uh, frying pan and into the fire. And now in verse 1, we see that he lifts up his eyes and he looks and behold, Esau is coming with 400 men. No sooner, uh, you'll notice, uh, no sooner had the Lord renamed Jacob Israel that we see in verse 1 of our passage that he is called Jacob again. 
Did you notice that? This is in stark contrast to what we see back in chapter 17, when Abraham, who was previously known as Abram, is renamed, and Sarai is renamed Sarah. Back there in chapter 17, when the Lord renames Abraham and Sarah, their name change sticks, and never again are they ever referred to as Abram or as Sarai. And yet for Jacob, who receives this name change, who's now called Israel, it's immediately later that he's still called Jacob again. And we may wonder why. What is the significance of this? I think the significance is to be seen in in what they portray for us. If Abraham is a picture of justification by faith alone, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, as Paul quotes in Romans, if Abraham's a picture of that once and for all definitive act of God that he is justified, then perhaps Jacob is a picture not of justification but of sanctification, that work, that process of God, Uh, whereby we are more and more made into the image of Christ, but not once and for all, not definitive. It takes reminders. It takes, it's, it's a process. And so Jacob, who is renamed Israel, will continue being Jacob while also having this new name. And he needs to be reminded of this. It's a couple chapters later that the Lord will rename him again. I think that's exactly what we experience in this Christian life. We have been justified by faith, once and for all, declared righteous by God, and yet we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ on a daily and especially a weekly basis. No longer shall you be called Jacob. Your name is Israel. Well, as Jacob sees Esau, his brother, coming, he lifts up his eyes and he sees the 400 men. Now, keep in mind, at this point, we have not been told Esau's intentions, We are left to assume with Jacob that Esau has summoned these 400 men to come and annihilate his camp. And yet, so still, even at this point, when Jacob lifts up his eyes, he sees his brother coming, we are left in suspense. What's going to happen? Here comes Esau with the 400 men. And as he sees them off in the distance, Jacob is left to make final preparations to meet his brother. And he divides his family, we read in verse 1 and 2, according to rank. Keep in mind, last, uh, in the previous chapter, out of fear and panic, Jacob divided his company into two camps, thinking if he attacks one, at least the other will be able to escape. And perhaps here, this is also his intention, as he puts the servants out in front, and then Leah, and then last but not least, he reserves Rachel, his favorite wife, Uh, to be the furthest away. Perhaps here, Jacob is continuing uh, to try to mitigate his losses. And even if that is not his intention, certainly he is, in ranking his family, he is showing favoritism. It's tragically ironic that Jacob is falling into the same exact sin that his parents had fallen into, as one one, uh, parent favored one twin and the other parent favored the other twin, so here, the ugly sin of favoritism, is, it's rearing its ugly head. And it's ironic that even the favoritism that his parents showed towards uh, either twin, resulting in this conflict between the brothers, is the same type of sin that he's going to be continually doing, as we'll see uh, in the coming chapters. And yet, while the old Jacob might have hung back, 
staying in the very back with Rachel and Joseph, and just to see what the front camp will experience as soon as Esau comes, the newly renamed Israel takes the lead of his family, and he goes first. So that that is at least one significant change in the life of Jacob as we see him leading his family, leading uh, the, the, the delegation to greet his brother. And we read that he does that in verse 3, bowing to the ground, bowing his face to the ground seven times in front of his twin brother Esau, showing complete and total deference. Now, if we were watching this on TV, at this point there would be a commercial break to hold us into, in suspense, to make us wonder, what is Esau going to do? Because at this point we've been given no hint No clue whatsoever about how he's going to respond to all these things Jacob has been doing. Sending the the delegation ahead of him. Sending the gifts, the 550 animals as a present to his brother. Bowing before him, calling himself his servant and Esau his master. How is he going to respond? Well, the commercial breaks over. We see in verse 4 something that, that... you know, I, I think we're, we're used to reading this. We're familiar with the story, so it doesn't shock us. But for the first-time listener, this should completely shock you. He's not angry. He's not on a rampage. He's not even standing back with his arms folded, uh, uh, waiting for jo- Jacob to apologize. But we see that Esau, in verse 4, runs to meet his brother. He embraces him. He falls on his neck, kisses him. And they both weep together. This is totally unexpected. It's ironic that this is even the same type of language that our Lord uses to describe the father of the prodigal son, who upon his return, thinking, you know, coming up with his apology that he's going to have for his father, we see that his father doesn't even wait. He runs out to meet him, and he embraces him, falls on his neck, kisses him, and cries together. And that's exactly what we see with Esau. And so we're left to wonder, what happened? Was the 20 years enough time for Esau to forget about uh, what his brother had done to him, to be able to, to, uh, to forgive and to move on? Did Jacob's strategic gifts of, of uh, spacing out these uh, various animals, 550 animals total, uh, w- w- did, was that able to appease his wrath? Did the sight of his own brother and perhaps the women and children cause Esau to want to bury the hatchet? Or did the Lord miraculously intervene and soften Esau's heart at the last moment? We're not told. We're left to speculate. But one thing for sure is that Esau's reaction is a result of God's action, whether through what we call ordinary providence or extraordinary providence. Jacob had God to thank for Esau's reception of him. It's interesting, this is in stark contrast to his interaction with Laban. God didn't change Laban's heart, he just warned him, don't do anything to him, either bad or good. But in Esau's situation, God changed his heart and enabled him to forgive his brother and to receive him with a happy face. And that's why I think Jacob can compare his brother's face to the face of God. Did you notice that? Where he says, I've seen your face, and it's like the face of God. 
as he receives, uh, as he, uh, as he uh, compares his brother's happy face to the face of God, whom he had seen the night before in the wrestling match, Jacob acknowledges the Lord's hand in all of this. His brother's willingness to forgive and accept him reflected God's disposition towards him, being favorable towards Jacob. And as the two brothers share a warm embrace as they as they weep tears of joy, you, you picture Esau lifting his eyes, wiping the tears from his eyes, and looking out at this impressive co- company, this huge host of people. That's literally what he says. What is this camp that I see? Looking at, the, uh, looking at uh, Jacob's family, and he requests a formal introduction. As Jacob sends his family one by one, first the servants, uh, Zilpah and Bilhah with their sons, and then and then Leah, and then last but not least, we read of Joseph and Rachel coming and bowing before Esau, each according to rank, as he, set, uh, uh, as he sent them uh, before his brother. You'll notice that this is the complete opposite of what Isaac said would happen when, Jacob, when, when Isaac blessed Jacob. You remember the scene where Jacob had gone into his father's tent, his father's eyes had grown dim, he wasn't able to see, and so he disguised himself as his brother Esau in order to get the blessing. And one of the blessings that that Isaac pronounced over Jacob, thinking it was Esau, but nonetheless pronounced over Jacob, was this, be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. You notice this is the complete opposite. It's not Esau that's bowing before Jacob, but it's Jacob and his family, Jacob and his sons and wives that are bowing before Esau. You see, in bestowing the lavish gift and calling himself a servant and addressing Esau as his master and having his family bow before Esau, what we see here is Jacob trying to do everything within his power to return the blessing that he had stolen from his brother 20 years before. You see, he felt guilty. He felt remorse. He thought back about that incident that happened 20 years before, and he knew and realized that was not good. That got me nowhere. And so what is he doing? He's giving it back. Brother, I don't need this. I want to give it back to you. You see, the reason why Jacob could return the blessing is because he realized that he had already been blessed by God. That very morning, before sun had risen, as he clung to the angel of the Lord, as he he clung uh, to the second person of the Holy Trinity, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and begged him for a blessing, he received that blessing by faith alone through grace alone. And he realized that all the works of the flesh did not gain him the promises of God. All of his devices and desires, everything that he had tried to do, those alleged victories that he thought he had gotten before really got him nowhere. And so as he bows before his brothers, he has his family bow before him, he's recognizing that God alone is able to bless. And it's only through grace alone, through faith alone. And yet as he tries to give this blessing back to Esau, he hits a a, a slight little snag. Notice in verse 9, Esau says, I don't need it. 
Keep what you have, brother. Verse 9, I have enough. I don't need this blessing. You can keep it. See, he declines the gift, citing the fact that he already has plenty. Something uh, really interesting to note, as with Ishmael, his uncle, uh, we we see here, once again, in redemptive history, that the non-chosen line experienced common grace blessings simply because of their physical descent from Abraham. So simply because that they are physical descendants of Father Abraham and, and his father Isaac, we see here the Lord nevertheless continue to bless them with physical, common grace blessings. And so Esau, like, uh, like uh, Ishmael, would become a mighty nation. The nation coming from Esau would be known as the Edomites. And it's really interesting, even as you uh, read further in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 23, Moses has a very uh, uh, intriguing command to the Israelites. He says in Deuteronomy 23, you shall not abhor the Edomite, for he is your brother. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So even though Esau is not the chosen line, he, uh, his brother Jacob being chosen over him, nevertheless, descendants from him are to be regarded as brothers of the Israelites and are given an opportunity in the third generation to enter into the assembly of the Lord. That is to be incorporated into the people of God. And so it's a, a pretty remarkable thing to consider. The common grace blessings extended to Esau and, his, and the Edomites in also opening up the door of opportunity for them to experience the special grace blessings if they embrace those promises by faith. And yet here, citing the fact that he has plenty, that he doesn't need all of these gifts that his brother wants to bestow upon him, Jacob nevertheless insists that he takes it. We read in verse 11 that he urged him. This, this is a very strong word. It's the same word that's used for Lot, when he tries to urge the angels not to sleep in the, in the open, uh, uh, in the open uh, city of Sodom, or even later on for the men of Sodom as they press against Jacob. Very strong word as Jacob here insists that his brother receive this token of their reconciliation. You see, if he hadn't taken it, then Jacob wouldn't be assured of his, of his forgiveness. He, he wouldn't be able to sleep at night thinking, is my brother going to come back and get me? But he's, he, uh, he insists, and therefore we read at the end of verse 11 that Esau took it. And so the brothers having been reconciled, Esau having forgiven his brother and received this token of, of, uh, of forgiveness, we, see, we read in verse 12 what follows is a rather awkward exchange between the brothers where Jacob is not entirely up front with Esau, his brother. Let's there in verse 12, uh, verse 12. Esau says, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. And so here we see, we find out at, at long last, we find out what those 400 men were for. Remember, he heard that Esau's coming with 400 men. He assumed the worst, that Esau was coming to kill him. But it turns out that these 400 men were to serve as a protective escort for Jacob and his family to take them down to Seir, to Esau's home, or to, to where Esau now was living. 
And Jake, you'd think at this point, Jacob was probably a bit surprised. Ooh, I guess I maybe overreacted a bit. Maybe I assumed the worst. But you see, Jacob has already received a special command from the Lord to return to the land of promise. Remember back in chapter 31, while he was still back in Padam Aram, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and he says, you need to return back to your homeland, to the land of promise. And so Jacob, having already received this, would not be able to accompany Esau down to Seir, since that would be in the opposite direction. As I mentioned, it's in the far southeast of of the land and uh, southeast of the Dead Sea. It would be taking him in the wrong direction. Well, at this point, Jacob should have said to his brother, I can't go with you. The Lord has commanded me to go back to the land of Canaan. That's where I need to go. Thanks, but no thanks. You see, as I said, Jacob is not entirely upfront with his brother. And once again, even though he's been renamed by the Lord, even though he's made steps in his sanctification, nevertheless, we see Jacob once again resort to the familiar familiar, uh, role of the deceiver. He resorts once again to deception. And he tells him this lie. I mean, it's not entirely a lie. He says, well, you know, I can't keep up with you. I have flocks. I have children. And, and you know, you and your men, you travel so quickly. And if we travel at your pace, then all of us will die. So he comes up with an excuse. And Esau, having heard this, seems that it's reasonable. He, he even tries to accommodate his brother. He says, well, how about I leave some men with you to accompany you on your way down to Seir? giving Jacob yet another chance to be upfront and honest with his brother. But sadly, once again, he doesn't take that opportunity. And as Esau and his men head south back down to Seir, we read in verse 16 and 17 that Jacob and his company head north. We read that they head north to Sukkoth. Now, Sukkoth, uh, from our best guesses, would require that Jacob would head north and actually head north of the Jabbok River, which I says, said was a bit of a milestone for Jacob. The, uh, the, the Jabbok River serving as sort of a, uh, the, the very first barrier, the outer frontier of what would be the land of Israel on the Transjordan side. We read that he doesn't head over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, but rather he goes back to where he came from. And we're not told why. The place name, Sukkoth, which literally means booths, gets its name from the temporary structures that Jacob built for his livestock while he resided in this area. And we're not told, we're not told why he went back to this area. Neither are we told how long he stayed there. But from what we can gather... Due to the fact that he leaves Padam Aram when all of his children are relatively young, and the next time we read about his children in chapter 34, they're grown adults, suggests to us that Jacob spent a significant amount of time in Sukkot, perhaps as much as a decade before he then crossed the Jordan River and got back to the land of Canaan. And we were left to wonder why. Uh, Something's very interesting is the place name Sukkoth, which literally means booths, is the same exact word uh, that is used to describe the feast of booths 
that is later on commanded for the Israelites to keep in Leviticus chapter 23. This feast uh, served as a memorial for how the Lord provided for the Israelites during their 40-year wilderness wandering as they lived in booths. As they lived in temporary structures, they were to keep this feast annually, uh, moving out of the house, in, uh, living in booths for the week during the time of the feast. And so we, so we might even wonder at this point, why is Jacob doing this? Why doesn't he go right back to the land of Canaan as the Lord commanded him? Is this a self-imposed exile? Is this his own sort of uh, self-imposed 40 years of wilderness wandering? before crossing the Jordan River. Well, as I said, none of, uh, we, we we're not given any answers. We're just left here to speculate these things as Scripture quickly fast-forwards uh, to the important point. When we read in verse 18 that Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which goes out of its way to say is in the land of Canaan. Now in verse 18, finally, at long last, after 20-plus years of living in exile, Jacob is now able to plant his feet firmly within the bounds of Canaan, the promised land. And we read that as a token of, of ownership of the entirety of the land. Jacob, in verse 19, purchases a plot where he is able to pitch his tent. This is comparable to what his uh, grandfather Abraham had done after the death of Sarah, his wife. He needed to uh, have a place to bury his dead. But, he, but uh, any, just any cave wouldn't do, not even a loner cave would do. He wanted to own, to have possession and ownership of a burial place for he and his family so that they could die in faith. Uh, die claiming the promises of God that one day the Lord would give them the land and ultimately what that land pointed to, heaven itself. And so Jacob here buys, just as a token of ownership of the whole land, he buys a plot where he might be able to pitch his tent to, to, for he and his family to reside. It's interesting here that Jacob purchases the plot of land at the going market price. He doesn't claim it as his own. Uh, He doesn't claim divine right. God's promised me this land, I'm going to take it. He doesn't take it by the sword, but rather he renders unto Caesar what what is due unto Caesar. He seeks to live at peace as much as it lied within within him, with his neighbors, just like his his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. His, His confession, like them, was that he was a stranger and exile on the earth and that he was looking forward to the better country, the heavenly homeland, as the author to Hebrews tells us. You see, like his father and grandfather, Jacob was a tolerated pilgrim in the land of Canaan, not a triumphant possessor. Sadly, this peaceful resettlement into the land does not last long, as we'll see, Lord willing, next Sunday Things go horribly awry with the inhabitants of the land uh, with whom they are residing. And yet for the time being, we read in verse 20 that Jacob erects an altar. Once again, these altars that are constructed by the patriarchs that were built only within the land of Canaan serve as milestones for their journey of faith as they're able to mark the location that God has brought them thus far in their journey of faith. But also these altars serve as symbolic land claims, staking a claim to the land that the whole place will belong to them 
and their descendants. And he names the altar, which is significant. All the names are significant. He names it El Eloe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Notice he didn't name it El Eloe Jacob, but El Eloe Israel, claiming the new name. You see Jacob here identifying with the new identity that he had been given by God, identifying with the new man, who he is in Christ, rather than his old man. He calls upon his covenant Lord and thus begins to fulfill the vow that he had sworn over 20 years before. Upon his departure from the land of Canaan, the Lord appeared to him, uh, showing him the stairway from heaven. And Jacob, in response, swore a vow. He said, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and, I will, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Here he sees the, the fulfillment of that. He's safely back into the land of Canaan, and so he begins to fulfill that vow in making an altar and calling upon the name of the Lord and identifying himself as that new creature that God had sovereignly declared he was some time before. As we consider this passage, as we consider Jacob's final return back to the land of Canaan after 20 years of exile, we must confess that this, our passage displays a very imperfect, sinful man on his journey of faith. And starts and stops, taking two steps forward and one step back, we see that he limps not runs, but limps back to the land of promise. Jacob has learned very difficult lessons, and he has realized that his previous victories, according to the flesh, gained him nothing. He would have to rely solely upon the grace of God to obtain the blessings of the covenant. And I think it's this lesson, and the fact that Jacob was able to embrace the promises of God by faith, that sets him so far apart from his brother Esau. As we consider these twins, uh, twins are always a fascinating case study. When you consider, first of all, how similar they are, how similar they could be, but also how different they could be. And how allegedly, you know, they're born with equal footing. They're born at the same time. They share the womb. And yet, Hosea tells us, and Paul quotes in Romans 9, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Why is it Jacob? What is it about Jacob's life? What is it about this person that, that God has chosen him and not chosen the other? Well, Paul goes out of his way in Romans 9 to tell us it's not because of anything that Jacob has done. As a matter of fact, it was, it was uh, before they had done anything, before they were even born, before they had opportunity to do anything either good or bad, it was said, the older shall serve the younger. And Paul says that is, why it is, that is why our salvation depends not upon works, but upon grace. As we compare these brothers, it's fascinating. Even in this passage today, it seems like Esau gains the upper hand. Esau, the, the, the rejected one, seems to be more generous and more gracious than Jacob. He's willing to forgive him. He, he embraces his brother like the father of the prodigal son. And Jacob is left groveling in the dust and then even afterwards resorts back to deception again. And yet it was Jacob 
to whom the promises were given. And so, as we consider the life of Jacob, I think this this echoing refrain from Romans chapter 9 should just continue in the back of our mind. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend upon human will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. And I think that is true not only of Jacob, but each and every one of us. Amen? Let's give thanks.